Good morning. Well, I know it's become a standing joke, but here we are in the fourth message of our series, and we're finally getting to the text of the book of Haggai. Haggai is the third from last book in the Old Testament, and the easiest way to find it is to turn to Matthew and flip backwards a few pages. You'll come to it quickly. Today we finally come to this short, in my Bible, two-page book that records Haggai's ministry to the small group of Jews who had returned to Jerusalem around the year of 538 B.C. Now, before we jump into the text, let's quickly trace the events that bring us to this point in time. As you know, Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians in uh, 586 B.C. The Babylonians plundered and burned the temple and then the city, and they deported the Jews who survived to Babylon. In 539, the Medes and the Persians conquered the city of Babylon by coming under the wall, as we discussed last week. And suddenly the territory, the wealth, and the people of the Babylonian Empire were trans- transferred into the control of the Medes and the Persians. Later that same year, the Persian king Cyrus issued a decree, and in that decree he granted the Jews who wished to do so permission to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple of Yahweh. Now Cyrus's decree, I am convinced, was an answer to the prayer of Daniel that we studied last week. Now, late in 538, or perhaps early in 537, approximately 42,000 Jewish men and their families set out from Babylon to return to Jerusalem. Ezra 3, which we read a couple of weeks ago, told us how on the day that they finished uh, the foundation for the new temple, took them about two years, many of them wept with joy and yet others wept with sorrow because they could still remember Solomon's temple that they had seen before it was destroyed. Well, turn with me now, if you will, to Ezra chapter 4. I promise we're going to get to Haggai, but we need to look at Ezra chapter 4 very briefly. The reason we need to look at this is that the key event that led to the need for Haggai's ministry is recorded here. Listen to verses 1 through 5. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God in Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we we seek your God as you do, and we have sacrificed to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the fathers, rest of the heads of the fathers' houses of Israel said to them, You may do nothing with us to build a house for our God, but we alone will build to the Lord God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in building, and they hired counselors against them 
to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. You see, the Jews were right to reject this offer of help for two reasons. First of all, those who offered to help them were not true worshipers of the God of Israel. They were followers of a false syncretistic religion that combined what they thought was the worship of the God of Israel with the worship of many other gods. These are the people who were the ancestors of the people we know as the Samaritans in the time of Jesus. The second reason we know that it was good that they rejected this offer of help was that the offer was insincere. These people of the land, when their offer of help was turned down, turned against the Jews in Jerusalem. They harassed them. They brought false accusations against them. They hired lawsuits and made lawsuits against them for the next 16 years. And so no further progress was made on the temple between 536, when the temple foundation was completed, and 520, where the book of Haggai opens. So at the end of those 16 years, it is 520 B.C. The foundation of the temple has stood bare in the sun and the rain for 16 years. It's kind of stood, as we said once before, as a monument to the failure of those who had begun the project. We will turn to the book of Haggai in just a moment. Please join me in prayer before we do. Father, as we read of another generation of your people and their efforts to please you, grant that we may understand them, grant that we may understand how you worked with them, and in the process that we may understand better our relationship with you and your desires for us. We pray this through your Son. Amen. Okay, well, we are now in Haggai chapter 1. My goal this morning is to go through the entire first chapter of this book. We'll start by making an overview of the chapter, then we'll go back and examine the text in detail, and then at the end, I want to consider some implications and applications of what we see. Now, in this chapter... I see three messages from God and two responses from the people. Let's look at the three messages. The first of the three messages is right there in verses 1 and 2. It's very short. The second of the three messages is in verses uh, 3 through 11, rather long, and that is the bulk of the chapter. The third message is very, very short, just one verse, verse 13. Now, as we'll see shortly, the first message is directed only to the leaders, Zerubbabel and Joshua. The last two messages are for the entire congregation. The first message is a rebuke. The second message is both an explanation and a command, and the third message is an encouragement. Now, there are also two responses given to God. The first response is found in verse 12, and the second one is found in verses 14 and 15. 
The first response centers around two key verbs. It says that they obeyed and they feared. The second response also centers around two verbs. They came and they worked. That's our overview of the passage. Now let's take a closer look. Listen as I read for you again verses 1 and 2. In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. A little bit of observation here will tell us a lot about God's assessment of the situation. Now, the first thing I'd like us to note is how God describes himself in comparison to Darius. He simply calls Darius King Darius. He doesn't mention the empire that he reigns over. He doesn't say anything else about him. But God, speaking through Haggai, identifies himself as the Lord of hosts, Your Bible might say the Lord Almighty. The Hebrew words there are Yahweh Sabaoth, and what they literally mean is the God who rules the armies of heaven. You see, Darius, the king whom Israel's enemies are appealing to in their efforts to stop the rebuilding of the temple, is a mere human ruler, and he only rules mere human armies. But the God whose temple lies unfinished is the God of the universe. He's the ruler of earth and heaven and its unseen armies. And in calling himself the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel is reminding Zerubbabel and Joshua that it is him they should fear, not King Darius or their other human enemies. Now next I'd like you to notice that God here addresses only the leaders. Zerubbabel is the supreme leader of the people, and Joshua, who's called Jeshua in Ezra, in case you were wondering, is the high priest. But he's a high priest who has no temple in which to serve. Notice that in addressing the failure of the people, God addresses their leaders first. Now we go on and we see that God does not say, my people, he says, this people. God is annoyed. He's not rejected his people, but he is displeased with them. Now eventually, later on in this chapter, God will address them differently when he says, I am with you, as if to say, you are my people. But harsh words are needed here at first to catch the leader's attention. And God uses them. Now finally, consider the message. The message is a rebuke. God says, this people says the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Well, Daniel thought it was time. He thought the time had come. That's why he prayed in chapter 9. God thought it was time. That's why he moved the heart of Cyrus. 
And the people who are in Jerusalem, who have been there now for 18 years, they once thought that it was time. That's why they pulled up stakes in Babylon, made the long journey, and built that foundation. But opposition from the people of the land and their own personal cares and concerns had weakened their determination. Their claim that the time has not arrived was really nothing but an excuse. And so God sent Haggai to explode that excuse and get them moving again. Well, let's move on to the second message in verses 3 through 11. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and for this temple to lie in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You've sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple, that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that is in ruins, while each one of you runs to his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock and on all the labor of your hands. Let's make a few observations here. The first thing I'd like to note is that this message is not addressed to anyone in particular. We're not told that it's for the leaders alone. We're not told that it's for the people alone. And from that, I conclude that this message was spoken publicly by Haggai in the hearing of everyone. All of the people are guilty of failing to fulfill their mission, and they all need to hear what God has to say. Now, the second thing that really stands out is that God considers the way that they are living as a complete inversion of the proper priorities. God says, is it time for you to dwell in your paneled houses and for my house, my temple, to lie in ruins? Now, I looked up that word paneled there. It's kind of an interesting word. If you do that yourself, you'll discover something. That word is only used three other places in Scripture. Solomon paneled the temple that he built for God. Solomon paneled his own palace, which, by the way, if you read in Chronicles, there's a comment there that says Solomon spent seven years building the temple and 13 years building the palace. There's a little bit of an expression of displeasure on the part of God 
And then there's one other king, we are told, Jehoahaz, who paneled his house. And when he does it, God mocks him for it. And he says, you think that because you built yourself a paneled palace, you're going to be king for very long? You see, when God says to the rebuilders, is it time for you to dwell in your paneled houses? I think we have a dual rebuke. First of all, paneling a house in the ancient world was really reaching. It was over the top. It was like building yourself a house and having three swimming pools. The second thing is that the fact that some of these people who returned from Babylon could actually afford to panel their houses, and yet they claimed that it was not time to build the house of God, proved that they were being stingy with some very considerable wealth that God had provided toward them. They were rationalizing their greed. Now, the third thing that catches my attention here, and which most of the second message is devoted to, is God's explanation of the plight of the rebuilders. Look at verses 5 and 7. You see how God repeats himself? Twice he says, consider your ways. Now, literally in Hebrew, it says, apply your hearts to your paths. Apply your hearts to your paths. God is speaking. In fact, he's shouting a call to attention. Look at what you are doing. Let me tell you why you find such difficulty in your efforts to make a living and provide for yourselves. Well, their failure is apparent, isn't it? According to verse 6, no matter how hard they work, the yield of their crops is small, the supply of their food is inadequate, the harvest of their grapes is meager, the output of their looms is insufficient, and the money goes out faster than it comes in. What was not so apparent to them was the reason for their failure. God says, it's very simple. I am the cause of your failure. Look at verse 9. God says, you looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Look at verses 10 and 11. The heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit, for I called for a drought. And then God goes on and he lists everything that this divinely imposed drought affected. The lowlands, the mountains, the grain, the grapes, the olive trees, and everything that grows. People and cattle, and indeed everything that they put their hands to. Now why did God impose that drought? The reason was simple. And again, it's right there in verse 9. Because of my house that is in ruins while every one of you runs to his own house. Now, there again is something very interesting in the words that God uses here. You see that word ruins that God uses to describe his temple? He uses it twice in verses 4 and 9. It's basically the same word as the word drought in verse 11. If you look them up in Hebrew, they come from the same root. It's as if God is saying, since you choose to leave my temple in ruins, I have made your land a ruin. And there's more. 
In verse 10, God says, The heavens above withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. Look up that word dew in the Old Testament, and you'll see it only appears in three places again. It appears when, let me get this right, when Abraham is giving his blessing to Jacob, it appears when Abraham is giving his blessing, which isn't much of a blessing to Isaac, and it appears when Jacob is blessing Joseph. In each case, it's a description of what God will do to make the land fruitful. He says, I will send the dew of heaven. You'll never find that phrase anywhere else. Now, you put those two observations together, and the point becomes clear. God has withheld his blessing, and he has imposed a drought on the people because they have their priorities wrong. They're building their own houses, their own businesses, their own fortunes, albeit with little success, and they're ignoring the task for which they had returned to Jerusalem in the first place. Now, what do we see here? Once again, we see God working according to the promises and the penalties that he had laid out hundreds of years earlier in the Palestinian covenant. God is being faithful, faithful to judge sin. And as we'll see next week and the week after when we get to chapter 2, God will also be faithful to reward godly service. Now, the last thing that I'd like to observe in this second message is that God gives the people a command here. He says, go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified. Now, the implication of the command is simple. Your labors to provide for yourselves and build your fortunes and homes have brought little. If you want your fortunes to reverse, turn from disobedience to obedience. And I will turn from cursing you to blessing you. If you want my blessing, build my house. That's what God is saying. Well, now we come to the first response of the people in verse 12. It says, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the presence of the Lord. Now, this one verse is a very simple but very profound statement. Look at it. Who responded? Everyone. Everyone. The leaders and all the people. What did they respond to? They responded to the voice of the Lord their God. And let me just say in passing, this isn't part of my message, that it is always the voice of God that we need to respond to. People come and go, preachers, whatever they might be, we are not obligated to respond to them. We are obligated to respond to the word of the Lord. And it's interesting that Haggai, who wrote this book, makes a point right here saying, I'm just the messenger. It's not me they listen to. It's God. 
How did they respond? By obeying and fearing. Two little verbs. The text says they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. But it's very interesting. Do you notice it's not until we get to verse 14 that the people actually pick up their tools and go to work? I don't think that the obedience to which Haggai is referring here is the obedience of respond, of beginning the temple rebuilding. I think the obedience he's speaking of is obedience to God's command, consider your ways, apply your hearts to your paths. You see, God called them to examine themselves, and when they did, they recognized their sin. The text also says that the people feared the presence of the Lord. Conviction of sin always leads to a renewed fear of God, doesn't it? The people recognized that they had been walking in disobedience and sin for a long time. And with that recognition came the fear of further judgment. But God is pleased with their contrition. And now for the first time, he offers them a word of encouragement. So we come to verse 13. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. Short, sweet, and to the point. But those few words, I am with you, spoke volumes For those were the same words that had comforted God's people twice before at crucial points in Israel's history. What did God say to Joshua? He said, be strong and of good courage, for I am with you. What had God said to Solomon through David when Solomon was commissioned to build the temple? Be strong and of good courage and do it. Do not fear nor be dismayed, for the Lord God... My God will be with you. It's interesting to note in passing that our Lord Jesus Christ would use exactly the same words after he gave his great commission to the apostles, didn't he? He said, and lo, I am with you always to the very end of the age. It's not just the words, however, that gave comfort to God's people as they faced the daunting task of rebuilding the temple in the midst of opposition. It's the fact of who spoke them. It was Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of creation, the Most High God, the Lord who rules the armies of heaven, the God who has the power to carry out his plan despite the best efforts of men and angels to stop him. As Paul said in Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Well, the chapter closes with the second response of the people. God has said, I am with you. And so the people respond in verses 14 and 15. It says, so the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, 
And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. Now, several things call for our attention here. First, and I know I've said this before, but I want to say it again, it's not Haggai who moves the people to, to action, is it? It's the Lord. Haggai is only the messenger. Secondly, what was it that God did? The text tells us that God stirred up the spirits, the spirits of the leaders, the spirits of all the people. That verb stirred is a very interesting one. It's used in Scripture, much as we would in English, to describe waking up a sleeping person. Every morning, I have to go into Andrew's bedroom and shake him to get him out of bed. It's the word that he thinks I'm talking about him falling asleep now. It's the word that we use when we describe stirring up a fire. Both of those pictures are very appropriate here. God's people had come to Jerusalem with enthusiasm and with a plan. But circumstances and the cares of the world had led them into a kind of spiritual slumber. God's three messages had the desired effect now. The people's spirits are roused, and they become responsive to God's call once again. Now, the third thing that I want to call our attention to is the nature of their response. It's action. And that action is described in two words. They came and they worked on the house of God. The people didn't just nod their heads and say, yes, you're right. They got to work. Now, the last thing I'd like us to note is the time. If you compare the first verse of this chapter and the last verse, you'll notice that 23 days have passed since Haggai showed up and delivered his three messages. And you may be asking, why did it take 23 days for the response of the people to become apparent. Well, personally, I don't think that they're being lazy or dragging their feet. I think Haggai delivered all three of those messages on one day. I think they were convicted. And I think between that time and the point we reach at the end of the chapter, they have been preparing, gathering tools and equipment, making the necessary arrangements, making plans, Those 23 days were well spent in getting set up to resume the task that God had called them to do in such a way that it need not be interrupted again. Well, we've examined the three messages brought by Haggai. We've looked at the two responses of the people. I'd like to finish by stepping back to consider some of the implications of what we've seen. I see three areas of application here, and they concern three matters. Leadership and authority, effort and results, and priorities and blessing. Now, let's first address the issue of leadership and authority. Did you notice that over and over again in this chapter, the account emphasizes the importance of the leadership positions of Zerubbabel and Joshua? God's first message is directed only to them. 
every time that they're mentioned, they come in that order, Zerubbabel and Joshua. Every time they're mentioned, Haggai identifies them according to their roles, governor and high priest. Every time that Haggai refers to the entire congregation, all of those who return back, he lists the leaders first. These two leaders are among those who obey, who fear God, who come, and who work. They lead their people, and they stand with the people they lead. And what, I, what we see here, I think, is significant for several reasons. The first one is that it emphasizes the fact that God held Zerubbabel and Joshua responsible for the actions of the people, and God expected them as leaders to lead. God held them responsible for the failure of the congregation to complete the mission of rebuilding the temple. And likewise, God was pleased when these leaders set the example in repenting of their failure and returning to the task at hand. Now, leaders... This means that you bear a heavy responsibility, and that responsibility is before God. It's vitally important for you to lead. It's vitally important for you to be willing to confess and repent of sin when it's necessary. And it's vitally important for you to be willing to work alongside of the people you lead. What I'm saying applies to you not only if you're an elder or a deacon in the church, but if you're a committee leader, a Sunday school teacher, a camp counselor, or just a parent. And I don't mean to say just when I say just a parent. It's a very important role, as Arian reminded us today. Now, second, the fact that Zerubbabel and Joshua are emphasized so strongly emphasizes the idea that God generally works through the authority structures that he himself establishes. There may be times when God has to bypass a disobedient or ineffective or sinful leader, but most of the time, God leads his people through the leaders that he has given them. Now, if you are a leader in the church or in the home, That means that your responsiveness to God and his word is crucial for the healthy functioning of God's body or your family. Your obedience or the lack thereof is a model that others will tend to follow. Your repentance or your refusal to repent when you're caught in sin is an example that others will tend to imitate. For you men who are not leaders in the church but may have strong feelings about things that we're doing in the church that you think should be addressed or changed, you need to do one of two things. Either speak to a leader or become a leader. See, in my opinion, and I can't base this on the text right now, but it's my opinion that reform very rarely comes from the bottom up. It almost always comes from the top down through the leaders whom God has established. Gossip and murmuring rarely accomplish anything positive. 
If you have a complaint, as someone once said, either lead, follow, or get out of the way. Now let's consider the matter of efforts and results. One of the things that really strikes me in Haggai chapter 1 is the frustration of the Jews in Jerusalem. Just think how frustrated they were. They're making great efforts to provide for themselves and their families, but they're achieving very little in the results. God says, you so much, but you bring in little, and that really summarizes the situation nicely. The reason why their efforts brought so little fruit was not that they weren't trying hard. It's that God was intentionally withholding his blessing from them because of their spiritual disobedience. Have you ever felt frustrated in the way that the Israelites felt frustrated here? Have you ever felt that the harder you work, the less you accomplish? Do you look at your bank account or your retirement savings or your efforts to achieve a better standard of living for yourself and the people you love and feel like the Israelites in verse 6? He who earns wages earns wages to put into a bag with holes it could simply be that the times are hard. It might be that your methods aren't very good. Or it could be that God is intentionally withholding his blessing from you. And that leads to the final matter that I want to consider, priorities and blessing. If you were to ask me to summarize the history of Old Testament Israel in one sentence, this is what I would say. When Israel made God's priorities her priorities, God blessed her. But when Israel rejected God's priorities and pursued her own selfish goals, God withheld blessing and disciplined her. This is what Israel should have expected. This is what God promised them in the covenants. But somehow... This connection, the connection between priorities and blessing, was lost on the people. They forgot it over and over, and they had to relearn it time and time again. Now, we're not Israelites. We don't live under the provisions of the Palestinian covenant. But I ask you, does that mean that there's no connection between our spiritual service to God and God's blessing? What does the New Testament tell us? Well, first of all, it tells us that God never promised to bless us tangibly for spiritual faithfulness. Think about that verse in 2 Timothy chapter, two, uh, chapter 3, verse 12. It says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be rich, no, suffer persecution. How about Romans 8, 36? For your sake, we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. There's no promise in the New Testament that spiritual faithfulness will lead to tangible blessing in this life. There's no guarantee. And yet I believe God does promise to bless us for spiritual faithfulness. First of all, he promises, eternal, promises us eternal rewards for faithful service here on earth. Matthew 6, 19 to 20, our Lord Jesus Christ says this, 
Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Our Lord also in that same chapter indicated that we can expect our Heavenly Father to meet our basic needs for life when we put him first in our priorities. He said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Now, Jesus didn't say that our heavenly father would make us rich and powerful and famous if we were spiritually faithful, as he said to the Israelites. But he did say that God would meet our basic needs if we make him our first priority. Now, I don't think this is a guarantee, but I do think that it's a general principle that we will find true to experience in most cases. Now, the bottom line is this. Although the details vary, the following principle, I think, is just as valid today as it was in Haggai's day. If you want God's blessing, make God's priorities your priorities. And conversely, the flip side is this. If you're not experiencing God's blessing, it may mean, it may mean that you're not making his priorities your priorities. Now, let's get back to Haggai for a moment. It seems, as I read the text, that there were two classes of people in Jerusalem. The first group were the wealthy. They were the ones who had the money to build paneled houses for themselves. But they weren't letting that wealth, which was a stewardship from God, go toward rebuilding the temple. The second group was the common people. They were the ones of whom Haggai was speaking when he said, he who earns wages earns wages to go into a bag with holes. They may not have had much wealth, but they had time and strength and skills that were needed for the temple project. When Haggai showed up, both the wealthy and the poor were having a hard time because God was holding back his blessing from them. And as we'll see next week, it was not until they changed their priorities and put God first and got to work that God opened his hand of blessing to them. What about us? What about us? Are we doing the same thing that these people were doing? We are not in the middle of a church-building project, and if we were, this is not the text I would go to, although many preachers do. But we have resources. We have time. We have money. We have skills. We have gifts. We have relationships. And we are part of a local body under the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ that needs what each one of us have to offer. Let me ask you a question as I close, and as I ask it, I'm asking it of myself as well. Are your priorities right? Are you buying a new car? or spending money on something you don't need, or maybe just going out to lunch after church, but you're not 
giving to the church? If so, you may need to consider God's counsel. Apply your heart to your paths. Consider your ways. Are you spending your spare time golfing or watching sports on TV or chatting with the ladies or playing video games? But you're never able to find time to help with Awana or Sunday school or our community outreach programs or the youth or children's camps. Perhaps you need to apply your heart to your paths. Do your job or your hobbies or your house and your yard get all your attention? And does God only get the leftovers? Stop and think, and don't answer the question too quickly. What are your priorities? If you feel that God has been withholding his hand of blessing from you, maybe, just maybe, and only you can answer the question, maybe it's because you have been misplacing your priorities. Perhaps we all need to consider our ways. Let's pray. Father, as we close, I ask just one thing for myself for my brothers and sisters here. We all love you, Father. We all want to please you. And yet we are so often busy pleasing ourselves and ignoring you. Grant that we may today and in the days ahead consider our ways, look into our hearts. And as we do so, may your spirit enable us to see the truth. And if there are places where we find wrong priorities. Grant that we may see that, that we may repent of it, and follow the model of these people who you loved so dearly in the time of Haggai. Grant that we, like they, may see our sin and turn from it. And as we repent and turn back toward you, grant that we may gladly and willingly, and with rejoicing and with confidence in your goodness, Return to the things that you love most. We pray this with thanks and with anticipation that you will answer. In the name of your beloved Son, amen.